A few years ago, a writer named Tim Urban wrote an article called The Tail End. And the basic premise of The Tail End is he was about 30 years old. And he said, if I live to be 90 years old, so I have 60 years of life left, given the generous assumption I live to be 90, um, as I start breaking down the math on my life experiences, here's what that looks like. He said, for example, if I eat pizza once a month for the rest of my life and I live 60 more years, that means I get to eat pizza 720 more times. Sounds pretty good. Uh, If I go to the the beach, the ocean, once a year and I have 60 years left, that means 60 more beach trips. If I read five books a year for the next 60 years, that's 300 books I get to read. Now keep in mind, there's 130 million books that have been written and the number keeps growing. So if you read five books a year and you live another 60 years, that's 300 books, so choose wisely. Um, and then he gets a little more depressing. <laughs> he talks about the time that he spends with his parents. I'm just going to read straight from the article here. He says, I've been thinking about my parents who are in their mid-60s. During my first 18 years, I spent some time with my parents during at least 90% of my days. But since heading off to college and then later moving out of Boston, I've probably seen them an average of only five times a year for an average of maybe two days each time. So that's 10 days a year that I see my parents. About 3% of the days that I spent with them each year of my childhood. Being in their mid-60s, let's continue to be super optimistic and say that I'm one of the incredibly lucky people to have both parents alive into my 60s. That would give us about 30 more years of coexistence. If the 10 days a year thing holds, That's 300 days left to hang with mom and dad. Less time than I spent with them in any one of my 18 childhood years. And when you look at that reality, you realize that despite not being at the end of your life, you may very well be nearing the end of your time with some of the most important people in your life. If I lay out the total days I'll ever spend with each of my parents, assuming I'm as lucky as can be, this becomes starkly clear. If you see this picture, it's kind of hard to see, but... The very bottom is like two, three rows left of where X's aren't across the the times of hanging out with his parents. And this article is assuming that we live to be 90 and that our parents live to be 90 as well. But obviously that that assumption doesn't always hold true. My my dad died at 52. I had a friend last year whose dad died around the same time. We have actually no idea how much time we have on earth, how much time the people around us have on earth. And James says this in James 4.14. He says this. He says, you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. All right, guys, that's it. That's the, that's the sermon. Um, go home, have a stiff drink. Just call it a day. Um, we've been studying uh, Genesis chapter 1 for the past few weeks. We have a few more weeks to go. And in Genesis 1, God creates everything. It's kind of this foundational faith statement that Moses gives us about um, where we come from and why we exist and, and all those things. In Genesis 1, God creates everything, and it kind of goes throughout this process in which he creates things. He creates uh, the sun and the moon. He creates the, the, the earth and the sea. He creates the animals. He creates us. And after each of these statements, God reflects back and says, it was good. The thing that I made was good. And one thing that we miss, I think, in Genesis 1 as we read through it, because we're looking at it just primarily as a creation of animals and creatures and, and landscapes, one thing he also creates in the beginning is time itself. And when we kind of look at it from that lens, it's obvious 
that the author is implying that in the beginning, God created time. He created rhythm. He created mortality and, um, and time. So in Genesis 1, he says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then a few verses later, he says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So in the beginning, God creates this framework, this context, this, this structure of time. Of seasons, we're, we're lucky to live in a city like Richmond where we actually experience all four seasons in a calendar year. And when we see that, we understand, man, I really love the fall. I really love the spring. Winter can be dark and depressing at times. And summer can be brutal. We've been lucky this summer. and hasn't been. But we understand that there's this rhythm. And when God created everything and set this into motion, there's a rhythm and balance to these things. And God saw this and saw that it was good. On the first week when I preached on the goodness of God, I unpacked this word good that's used over and over in Genesis chapter one. And it comes from the Hebrew word tov, which has four implications. The first implication for the word good is that it's of quality craftsmanship. There's a certain quality to it. And we, and we understand that in the context of time. We look at the seasons and we look at just the good times, the really sweet times in our life. We understand there's a goodness there. It also implies, this word good also implies harmony. Once again, we see that when we see kind of the rhythm of, of life, the, the, the birth and death of people. We see this rhythm that happens, and everything kind of ha happens in harmony. We also see uh, an enjoyability. That's the third implication of the word good, that it's just meant to be enjoyed. And then the last piece is there's an intentionality. And as we look at this context of time, we see that it is good because there is a rhythm. There is a balance. There is a joy to it. There's night and day. There's seasons, and, and bad seasons end, and good seasons end. There's this rhythm, and, and God says a few chapters later in Genesis, he's speaking to Adam and Eve, he says, from dust you have come, and uh, to dust you will return. Mortality is implied in our existence from the beginning, but it's a good thing. David says this in Psalm 90, and basically time is good because it gives us a framework in which to order our lives, and David says this in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We know that we only have so much time here on earth, so teach us how to to manage that, to plan that, to, to live these things out to the fullest. Give us wisdom to do that. His son Solomon says a few books later in the book of Ecclesiastes, this famous passage about the beauty and the rhythm and the balance of time. And I want us just to read and reflect on this slowly this morning. There's an opportune time to do things, a right time for everything on the earth, a right time for birth and another for death, a right time to plant and another to reap, a right time to kill and another to heal. A right time to destroy and another to construct. A right time to cry and another to laugh. A right time to lament and another to cheer. A right time to make love and another to abstain. A right time to embrace and another to part. A right time to search and another to count your losses. A right time to hold on and another to let go. A right time to rip out and another to mend. A right time to shut up and another to speak up, a right time to love, and another to hate, a right time to wage war, and another to make peace. 
the limitation of time, the limitation of our time actually gives us its, its value. It's not about the quantity of the days that we have. It's about the quality. Solomon goes on a few chapters later in Ecclesiastes and says this, and I'm sure we love this verse. He says, even if someone lived a thousand years, make it 2,000, but didn't enjoy anything, what's the point? There's so many of us that, that may live long lives, but, don't, but are merely existing. We're not really enjoying all that God has for us. So it's not necessarily about the quantity of the time we have. It's about the quality that we have. We see this in the book, Lord of the Rings. If you guys have ever read that or seen the movies, there's, Tolkien creates this beautiful world with people of different lifespans, dwarfs and hobbits and humans and elves. And elves are essentially immortal. And there's a famous love story in this trilogy of Lord of the Rings where Arwen, the elf, Liv Tyler, if you've seen the movies, um, is in love with Aragorn, Viggo Mortensen, if you've seen the movies. And she chooses, elves are immortal, she chooses to, to, to enter into mortality in order to live a life with him. And she says, it's not necessarily about the quantity of my days, it's about the quality of my life. There's some truth in there. And, and he goes into detail about how these people with different lifespans choose to use their time. But this idea of limitation, this idea of urgency, actually adds value to the amount of time that, um, the value of the time that we, that we have. If I was given 30 years to write a book, or even one year to write a book, I would, I would take the time I was allotted. It's called Parkinson's Law of, of Labor. You basically fill the time up with the time you're given. Um, so because there's urgency, it creates a framework for us to, to have value for time. I see this with my kids all the time. Um, all of the, almost every week I, I kind of remember, because of Facebook. So Facebook has this thing called Time Hop or Time Machine or something like that. And about once a week I'll say, hey, two years ago your kids looked like this. <laughs> like, oh man, they don't look like that anymore. They're, they are growing quickly. Thanks, Facebook. You're mean for reminding me of all the good times I used to have, you know. Um, in a few weeks, my oldest daughter starts kindergarten. And on our refrigerator is a shopping list of school supplies. And every time I see that list, I get a little sad because my little girl is growing up so fast. Now, for some of you, you have your kids entering the last year of high school or graduating college or getting married, and you're like, Tommy, give me a break, okay? Okay, it's okay. But there's a sadness because time just keeps marching on. And if I'm not paying attention, I, I miss it. Uh, Jamie, our, our family minister here at Area 10, wore the shirt a few weeks ago that I saw. It just really caught me off guard. And it said, this is just a phase, so don't miss it. And I thought about that and applied to all areas of life. It, it definitely applies to family ministry. This is just a phase. This is just a phase is such an encouragement to some parents <laughs> because the kids are going crazy. They're just killing your sleep, killing your budget, killing it. So just a phase, thank God. Then the second part, so don't miss it. <sighs> okay. Things aren't always going to be this way, whether it's a good season or a bad season. It's just a phase, so don't miss it because time marches on. And the question for us is if God at the beginning of all things creates this framework for our mentality and says there's a limited amount of days that you're going to have here on this earth, how do we join David in his prayer in Psalm 90? God, teach me how to, to number my days that I may have a heart of wisdom. How, how do we maximize our time here? I have a few thoughts on that this morning. The first thing I would say is how do you maximize your time? I'd say slow down. Now, that might seem counterintuitive because we're trying to cram as much as we can into our life and experience as much as we can and go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. But I encourage you, if you want to increase the quality of your time, learn how to slow down. Seneca is a, a Stoic philosopher from uh, around the time of Jesus, and he has a book called On the Shortness of Life. And it's a short book. It's right to the point that punches you right in the face. One of my favorite quotes from that book is, the busy life is a brief one. Because we're so busy bouncing from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, we're never actually enjoying the moment that we're in. I encourage you guys to learn how to slow down. 
Now, for those of you who are, who are parents of, of young children, we, we have this phrase, we have this, this time of day that we call the witching hour. <laughs> and this is the hour when kids just go bananas because it's close to their bedtime, they're trying to fight that, and they're tired, and they're exhausted. It's just chaos. Uh, what's happened this past season in my life is that during the witching hour, there's also a time, maybe it's just because of the time changing, whatever, with, with summer, is that during the witching hour, uh, the sunlight hits our living room just right. The, the sunlight can hit, the sun's over here, the light's coming down, and, it's, and it goes into our living room, and listen, you see these sun rays, and it's just a really beautiful moment around 6, 6.30 every day. And usually around that time of night, me and my kids are wrestling and listening to ACDC's Back in Black, and it's a lot of good times going on. But once the sun hits that moment, I, kind of just, I usually just stop and say, oh, let's change the setting a little bit. Let's just slow down and take a deep breath. Let's put on some classical music, not just classic rock. Um, and let's enjoy this moment because this is a sacred moment. This is a sacred space. It usually doesn't work with them. It's usually me in my moment of zen and they're going, they're still wrestling. But it's a sacred moment of sunlight and kids. And I think for all of us, there's sacred moments in our days that we miss. And it's not going to be the sunlight hitting at that right moment for you necessarily. It's going to be something different. But there's times in our day when God's begging us to slow down and just enjoy and savor the moment. Because that's not going to happen. That's not going to last for long in my life. You know, the fall is going to happen. <laughs> it's going to be a different time of the day. The kids are going to be older. They're going to care less. So savor those moments. We cram every moment with, with junk. When I'm driving my car and in a red light, I pull up my phone. I can't sit still. My mind doesn't let me rest. We, we fight slowing down and being still and, and going deeper internally. So how do we maximize our time? It's not just cramming more things into your life. It's actually enjoying the things you have and slowing down. Secondly, I would say don't waste your present on bitterness towards the past. One thing I have a tendency to do, maybe you do as well, is I tend to replay conversations or wounds. I keep holding on to things that ticked me off in the past, that wounded me in the past. And I end up paying more my life ends up, it ends up costing my life more than the original offense. I multiply the wound more than it actually costs. And Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 3, which I read earlier. He says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And many of us have, have had painful experiences in the past that we just can't let go of. And what Solomon says to us is, you have to, to grieve that. You need to mourn that and you need to let it go and you need to move on. It's not saying that that wasn't painful. It's not saying that wasn't tragic. It's not saying that wasn't traumatic. But saying in a healthy way, learn how to grieve and mourn that so you can move on and have a healthy life. Don't waste your present on the wounds of the past. Grieve and let it go. I was having a conversation with my wife a few days ago, and she's just really angry at a person right now and having a hard time letting it go. And I, I, I'm this way all the time, too. I'm not throwing her on the bus. This is just the conversation we had. Um, and she was angry at this person and just kind of kept, kind of kept hitting. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. That was painful. That sucked. But at a certain point, how much are you going to let them impact the integrity of your soul, the quality of your life? Like, forget them. Who do you want to be? Forget what they've done. Forget what they've said. Who do you want to be? Don't pay them any more than they're due. Grieve it and move on. So many times we hold on to regret in the past. We wish we'd done things differently. You know, regret, sometimes regret can be a form of arrogance because we think if I'd just done things differently, things might have turned out differently. That might not be true. You might have done things differently and things might have played out the same way. So your regret might just be arrogance. Regret is only helpful if it helps you learn and grow from your mistakes. If you just keep reliving your mistakes and live in shame, it's toxic. We have to learn to let that go because the past can cost us the present if we don't do that. Learn to choose gratitude over resentment. Learn to be thankful for the things you have in your life now, not resentful for the things that you've lost in the past. That's hard. But if you want to learn how to live 
uh, maximize the quality of your life, the quality of your time. We have to learn to move on from the past. Uh, the next point is kind of tied to that, but don't let worry about the future rob your present. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, this famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Who can add an hour to your life by worrying about the future? No one. What good is worry? It's not. And that's easier said than done. A few years ago, I was in a lawsuit. This dude sued me for like three million bucks, and I didn't have it. Um, it's kind of a bummer. And the thing with lawsuits is they take a long amount of time. So we got kind of the letter right before two years after the event. Um, and then the, for the next two years, the lawsuit took place because we had to kind of wait in line for the judges because apparently people are suing everybody these days. It's just kind of a thing. So we knew for two years that we were going to be in this lawsuit that wouldn't be resolved until this date. Now, I did everything I could. I hired a lawyer. I did the research. I Googled stuff that made it worse. Um, I, I did all the things that I could. I got well-informed. I got well-represented, all those kind of things. But still, there was this time where you're just waiting for this, thing, this event to happen. There's a year, two years gap in there. And there's many a night where I stayed up thinking about it, being anxious, losing sleep. I became more irritable with my kids, things like that. And you know what that did for me for that lawsuit? Absolutely nothing. It didn't help at all. All that worry didn't help at all. It turned out kind of fine. Uh, and the worry and the time I put into that in the, in the waiting didn't help at all. And it's hard because it just, anxiety just kind of comes and hits you. But I think it's just discipline of reminding yourself that that's in the future and this is now. That's in the future. This is now. I can't do anything about the future because this is now. And we let worry about the future rob us from the experience and the joy of today. Corey Ten Boom says it like this, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. So don't waste your present on worrying about the future and don't waste your present on bitterness to the past. We spend so much of our mental lives in the past or the future that we lose sight of the joy and the beauty of today. Next thing I would say is learn how to find joy in your work. Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes, I know there's nothing better for us than to be joyful and to do good throughout our lives. To eat and drink and see the good in all of our hard work is a gift from God. Now, some of you guys may be thinking, right, Tommy, find joy in your work. Tommy, you don't know my, my boss. You don't know my job. You don't know my company or the culture I work for. And that's true. I don't know all of you guys, where you work, how your bosses are, the culture of your company, the nature of your work. I, I totally get that. And maybe when, when you hear this, maybe you, you just have to quit your job. Now, don't go to your boss and say, hey, my pastor told me to quit, and it's okay. It's not what I'm saying. But for all of us, we were created to create. We were created to be constructive and productive. Um, and just like God created everything through, through his work, we are called to, to join in that work of creation and productivity. And there's a certain joy that comes in our work. And because we spend so much of our lives, so much of our waking hours doing work, we need to learn to find joy in the production of it, to, to be able to end the day and say, that was a good day's work, and for Solomon, he says, have a good day's work, go hang out with your friends, have a beer, and celebrate. That's, what, that, says, that, that's one of the points of life. I love Solomon. He's a good dude. He says, find joy in your work. It doesn't mean that you have to love your boss or your company, but you do have to find joy in their production. One, one story that I, I, I kind of reference a lot in sermons is from Castaway, the movie Castaway. Tom Hanks is Castaway. He's on an island. He has his buddy Wilson. And there's a scene in that movie where he's trying to create fire, I guess, in order to cook or stay warm or whatever. And it takes him forever, but finally, he, after all this hard work, he makes fire. 
And then he just loses his mind. He's like, I have made fire. Look what I have done. I have done this thing. And there's such a beauty and joy, pure joy in what he's done. He's in a really terrible situation. But he finds this complete and utter joy in the fact that he created something. When I think about this idea that we are to enjoy our work or find joy in our work, I'm like, I want to be like Tom Hanks. When he made fire. I want to, at the end of my day, I, want to, I did something. I created something at the end of this week um, that wasn't there before. And that looks like a, a million different things for all of us because we all have different jobs and contexts. But if you want to make the most out of your time on earth, and because you spend so much of your time in work, find joy in your work. Next thing I'd say is just spend time with the people that you love and care about the most. There's 7.5, whatever, a bajillion of people on, on the earth. You can't know them all. You can't have deep relationship with, with all of them, but you can have deep relationship with, with a few people in your life. For some of you guys, that may be your family. Maybe your family's great, and, and as we mentioned that blog article earlier, you're like, man, I gotta spend more time with my family. I gotta squeeze uh, the, the moments there and take advantage of the time that I do have. Some of you guys, your family is terrible and toxic and unhealthy, and you say, I need to spend as little time with them as possible because they destroy my soul. But I hope for you guys that have maybe the toxic family, that you found friendships or you found uh, your own version of family as you grow up and, and, and connect with other adults and people in this life. So I encourage you guys to build deep friendships and create great memories. That is one of the sweet things of life, to have those meaningful, authentic, vulnerable, life-giving friendships and to create great memories with those people. And this takes intentionality. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for us is that we get so busy with stuff, 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 and we're skimming everything on the surface level. We don't get deep into a book. We don't get deep into our internal dialogue, and we don't get deep into our friendships because we spend so much of our time jumping from one thing to the next. So creating deep friendships requires intentionality. You have to be assertive and make it a point to hang out and spend time with people. But that's how you squeeze joy out of life is with these great, life-giving relationships, creating great memories. And the last thing I would say is just be aware of God's presence in your life daily, constantly. David said this in Psalm 46, he said, be still and know that I am God. And we struggle with being still because we don't want to know that he's God. We want to think that we're God, that we're in control of our, our destiny. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and listen to what he would say to you. In Psalm 90, which this is just a few verses after where he said, teach me to number my days. David says this, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. There's another passage a few books later in the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah is a prophet and he wrote the book of Lamentations and Lamentations is what it sounds like. It's a book of lament. It's a book of sorrow and sadness. But a few chapters into that and he's going off about how hard life is. And he says, but still, God, great is your faithfulness. I find your mercies new every morning. When I wake up, I experience your mercy. Now, the Jewish tradition, when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses wrote this to, to, to the people of Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he goes on in that chapter to say, and what I want you to do is to take this idea that God is one, uh, that you're to love God, that God loves you, that God is good. I want you to take this idea and I want you to put it everywhere. I want you to tattoo it on your arms. I want you to write it on your head. I want you to put a picture to write it by your door when you walk out and you see it. I want you to write it on your gatepost. When your kids wake up, when they go to sleep, remind them of the goodness of God. As you are going and journeying, remind them of the goodness of God. And so Moses is telling them, I want you to intentionally, consistently, physically remind yourselves of the goodness of God, because you can experience him every day of your life if you are paying 
attention. This also requires great intentionality because we wake up and just start buzzing through our days and we don't recognize the goodness of God. We don't practice the presence of God in our lives, as Brother Lawrence wrote. We don't see that God is in the mundane things of life. There's a great poem from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and it says, um, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every tree is ablaze with the fire of God. But only people who take off their shoes recognize it and see it. The rest of us sit around eating, plucking blueberries. I don't know why she said blueberries. <laughs> but the poem is powerful. God is everywhere. He's crammed into our daily lives all the time. But only the people that slow down and look for it will see him. The rest of us just kind of go through life completely unaware of the goodness of God. So if you want to increase the quality of your life and, 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 and maximize your time here on earth, be aware and intentionally look for the goodness of God around you. Wake up in the morning and write out what you're grateful for. And go beyond, I'm grateful for my health. I mean, that's great. Be grateful for that. I'm grateful for friends, family. That's great. But get specific. In this morning, in this moment, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful that today I get to do this. I'm grateful that this week this is going to happen. Choose a life of gratitude. See God in the mundane. I grew up in a faith tradition that was really big on saving souls from hell. And that's fine. That's a part of the gospel story where Jesus dies on the cross and um, redeems us and, and pulls us out of um, our own judgment, our own condemnation. But one thing, when I was trained in evangelism, I was trained basically, whenever you have a conversation with someone, no matter what the conversation starts off in, it needs to end with you asking this question to that person. If you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? That's a really heavy question for an opening conversation. Hey man, you like football? I like football too. If you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? <laughs> it's a tough transition. And I get the nature of that question, but Dallas Willard, I think, has a great rebuttal, or a different version of that question. He just says, what would happen if you don't? If you didn't die tonight, what would happen with the rest of your life? How would you spend your life? How would you spend your time? And in my opinion, Jesus speaks as much, if not more, into that um, as he does the eternal stuff. The eternal stuff's there. But Jesus said, I've come to give you life that you may have life more abundantly. He's come to teach us how to live our lives here on earth, how to maximize a holy, fulfilling life. So it's not just what would happen if you were to die tonight. It's what would happen if you don't. You have a finite amount of time here, and we don't even know how much it is. So what are you going to do with it? You have a finite amount of time with the people around you. You don't know how much that is either. Are you going to seize the moment? Are you going to take advantage of of the time that you have, or are you just going to sleepwalk through your life? Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus, who apparently in, in three years of ministry crammed so much life into that time. We have an example of a person who lived life to the fullest, that built great friendships and relationships, who, who made a difference and impacted people with his generosity, generosity not only with his power, but also with his time. And I pray that you teach us to number our days. You teach us to have a life of wisdom uh, that allows us to experience the quality and the beauty and the joy that you have for us, even in our finite lives. Amen.